0: Hi hey there, and welcome back to another episode of ENT in a Nutshell. I'm your host, Renee Malka, and today we'll be talking with Dr. Aurora Vincent, a facial plastic and reconstructive surgeon, about major head and neck defects, specifically regional and free flaps. It's great to have you with us, Dr. Vincent. Thank you for having me. Okay, so starting off, what do you typically define as a quote-unquote major defect or something requiring a regional or free flap, and how do these patients typically present?
1: When you think of a typical defect requiring a regional or free flap reconstruction, most often you'll think of large defects involving multiple facial units, multiple layers of tissue, and multiple tissue types. A composite defect of the left body and parasymphysis of the mandible, for example, in which, say, you're also missing part of the floor of mouth and buccal mucosa is one example, In that case, the reconstructive surgeon is likely looking at replacing intraoral soft tissue as well as a significant length of bone, and many surgeons would say that definitely warrants a free flap. In reality, however, regional and free flaps are not always large and are not always used for complex composite wound reconstruction. A temporoparietal fascial flap, for example, based off the superficial temporal artery, may only be a few centimeters, but it still qualifies as a regional flap. Similarly, very large defects in the skin of the scalp uh, could be amenable to regional or free flap closure, say a radial forearm or a trapezius flap or they may be better served just with large skin grafts or tissue expansion. One of the things that I hope you'll agree with by the end of this podcast is that there is no particular size or wound characteristic that determines whether a patient should have a regional or free flap. Rather, while these flaps are most often indicated for larger, deeper, more complex wounds, they're useful and can be considered for a broader range of defects. As for the second part of your question, patients can present in many ways, but we most often see regional and free flaps used to reconstruct major traumatic wounds or defects from surgical reconstruction of cancer and larger benign tumors. You can also see them with microtia, congenital deformity reconstruction, septal perforation repair, facial reanimation, and and a myriad of other causes, but the big two are going to be cancer and trauma. And taking a step
0: back, can you walk us through some of the physiological considerations and other wound features
1: important to settling on a reconstructive plan? So first, I think it's crucial to the success of any reconstruction. It's the nutrition. And in surgery, that means blood supply. In assessing the wound, you should know whether it has a healthy bleeding tissue bed or not. Is it radiated? Is it already scarred? In general, is it a wound that looks like it wants to heal or is it gonna need a lot of help? One of the benefits of regional and free flaps is that they can bring in healthy tissue that hasn't been radiated, hasn't been operated on before to a wound and provide its own blood supply. It's important to understand the concept of angiosomes here, both to avoid tissue injury in and around a wound when you make incisions, but also to improve the viability of tissue and overall success of a reconstruction. So back to basics, by definition, an angiosome is an area of skin and subcutaneous tissue that is supplied by a specific source artery. So the theory is that you can harvest the entire angiosome of tissue, and so long as you preserve the pedicle, the tissue will live. If you disrupt the pedicle, you can expect that that tissue will die, and in practice, this concept does hold up pretty well. Of course, you also have to remember choke vessels here. So Choke vessels are generally small caliber distal vessels that connect different angiosomes. They can dilate and can allow enhanced blood flow and nutrition to an angiosome separate from the main source vessel. And choke vessels are why some surgeons will delay a flap, meaning make the incisions, raise the flap, but then put it right back down in its native tissue. Let it heal for a short period, then go back, raise it again, and definitively transfer it. The theory is that during the time after the flap was initially raised, but before it's transferred the choke vessels will open uh, to improve the overall perfusion of the flap. Leaving the flap in its native position for a brief period prevents kinking and other compromises to the pedicle while the choke vessels are relaxing. Later, when the flap is actually transferred, uh, it should have improved native perfusion and should be at less risk for complete or, or partial failure. The natural history of a major head and neck wound will inform you of many features paramount to the reconstructive success. So first, you have to consider the type of tissue that's present or absent. As Dr. Gillies said, you should ideally replace like with like. So it's also important uh, to consider consider the quality of the remaining tissue in terms of its thickness, its pliability, its blood supply. Patients with traumatic injuries may not have significant tissue missing, for example, but It may simply have been rearranged and you need to put it back. Also, traumatic injuries tend to be surrounded by tissue that has a robust blood supply. It's pliable, it's stretchy, at least before it gets too swollen. Now, on the other end of the spectrum is the patient with recurrent head and neck cancer, who is frankly missing several layers of tissue because you've cut them out and has remaining tissue that's radiated. It's been cut on before, it's rigid, poorly perfused, and it's prone to break down if you look at it the wrong way, even without further manipulation. In all patients, but especially those with poorer tissue quality, incisions made during reconstruction should not disrupt the blood supply to the surrounding tissue, or you risk tissue necrosis, wound dehiscence, and overall reconstructive failure. Some patients with poor tissue quality may benefit from a series of hyperbaric oxygen dives before reconstruction to enhance their tissue nutrition, and similarly, they may benefit from HBO after surgery for the same reason. Of course, you should never recommend HBO for a patient who has active cancer. Now, back to the high points of the pathophysiology of head and neck wounds The missing tissue, rearranged tissue, and surrounding structures are what are going to inform the functional defects a patient may experience. It's important when reconstructing a defect to restore whatever function was disrupted, but not at the cost of a separate function nearby. For example, a poorly designed closure of a large cheek defect may successfully close the defect and recreate a barrier between the oral cavity and the outside world, But it could also cause tethering of the lower eyelid and subsequent ectropion. And thus, in finding the right reconstruction for a patient, you should not only identify the current functional and aesthetic problems, but also anticipate the changes that will be caused by your reconstruction. You've touched on this a little already, but what are the different conditions
0: that typically lead a patient to require a regional or free flap?
1: Cancer is the most common etiology encountered in my practice either during surgical excision as primary or salvage treatment, or secondary to radionecrosis years after definitive oncologic treatment. But trauma is also a common cause, and occasionally you'll run into benign masses that are large or unfortunately close to important structures. Arteriovenous malformations, lymphovascular lesions in the head and neck are examples here, large odontogenic keratocysts, some precancerous skin lesions, Large congenital moles, uh, even severely contracted scars from a previous injury, um, which need to be released. Free muscle transfer is also indicated for patients desiring facial reanimation. And if you're interested more in that, I'd refer you to Dr. Holman's uh, very nice podcast.
0: All right. And moving on to history and physical exam, let's start with history. When these patients present to your clinic, what
1: are some relevant factors you want to elicit on history? As with all patient encounters, a a thorough history and physical exam will give you nearly everything you need to know to properly treat head and neck defects. The history can inform you about the wound cause, wound features, intraoperative reconstructive needs, and likely postoperative course. It's here that you can start to figure out if they'll need other procedures, say a G-tube placement or a trach, and incorporate those into your own reconstructive plan from the start. You can schedule them at the same time. The history can clue you into nutritional deficiencies, comorbidities that could affect wound healing, tolerance of anesthesia, bleeding disorders, and so on. The history will also inform you about the patient and his or her habits, and these can be extremely important to achieving reconstructive success. So for example, is the patient likely to follow up or never show up again? If he's never going to return, then a one-and-done reconstruction May be better for that particular patient than a staged plan that would have had a better aesthetic result. Also, it's never a great situation when a patient with an X fix disappears for a few months, but it happens. Also, absorbable sutures may be preferable in this population. But finally, the history can tell you what the patient wants. What are his or her goals? Does he care what he looks like in the end, or does he just want to get out of the hospital? And that's very important too. Great. And in terms of physical exam, what are you making sure to focus upon? The physical exam is perhaps the most important part of preparing to reconstruct a head and neck wound, as visualization, palpation, manipulation of the wound itself is what's going to give you the most information about what needs to be reconstructed, what's missing, what the local tissue will provide versus what will need to be brought in from elsewhere. So, this is where you can start to discover what tissue is needed immediately, and what may be beneficial at a later time. So in the case of patients with cancer, you may not have a chance to examine the actual wound until you're in the operating room. Rather, you may need to anticipate your needs without knowing exactly what the defect will be. Defects in the upper aerodigestive tract, such as in the pharynx, esophagus, or trachea that create salivary fistulas into the neck should be repaired as soon as possible, as should wounds that expose the carotid artery. But soft tissue defects of the head and neck, even large multi-layer defects, can be delayed a day or two as needed for optimal reconstruction or to make sure the pathologist agrees that you fully remove the cancer. Folks with traumatic injuries, by contrast, they come to you with a wound and you have time, sometimes hours, sometimes days to week, to consider your options. But also don't forget that folks with traumatic wounds or wounds from the resection of benign lesions have less of a time constraint on the whole reconstructive process. So this allows you, the surgeon, more options to maximize the aesthetic and functional outcome. Cancer patients, on the other hand, in addition to often being older, sicker, malnourished, may need radiation and chemotherapy to start within a few weeks of surgery, and this limits the reconstructive options to those that can be reasonably accomplished within a short amount of time. Next, in examining the wound, as touched on previously, you can start to think about the vascular needs, are granulation or skin grafts even viable options, or do you need to find tissue with its own blood supply? And remember, more complex wounds are more likely to require regional or free tissue transfer But some smaller wounds may be best served by free tissue transfer too, so don't limit your consideration of flaps only to large and complex ones. Certainly you should key in on examining the defect, but don't forget the rest of the physical exam too, especially before getting to the operating room. It can clue you in on what tissue is available for reconstruction, what has been done before, which vessels are likely available, and it can also tell you how a patient heals. Like, is he or she prone to scarring, keloids? Is there evidence of previous poor wound healing and dehiscence? And then there's always the cardiopulmonary exam, and this can reveal comorbidities that the patient maybe didn't mention or maybe forgot about. I I once encountered a patient we had scheduled for a pectoralis flap and we didn't discover until in the operating room that she had previously undergone breast augmentation. It wasn't visually obvious and she hadn't mentioned it in her surgical history. And that certainly changed the surgical plan. So this all goes back to the old adage of trust but verify. Keep an eye out for scars from prior surgery. Ask yourself, do they cross important vessels? Will they devascularize areas of tissue when I make new incisions? Is the skin shiny and hairless, which can be a sign of peripheral vascular disease? Or is it healthy and hairy? Are there tattoos that the patient won't want disrupted? Um, And so
0: on. Outside of a more standard head and neck exam and examination of the relevant donor and recipient sites, are there any other tests or maneuvers you'd
1: consider performing? As you're completing the peripheral physical exam and thinking about the needs of the wound, you likely already have a few reconstructive options in mind, and there are specific tests for some flaps that you shouldn't forget about. If you're considering free tissue transfer, you may want to try and palpate the facial artery, which is commonly preferred for anastomosis, but even if you can't palpate it, it may still be viable. If you're considering a radial forearm free flap, then you should perform an Allen test. Now, we can harvest the radial artery and forearm tissue because of the ulnar artery. So typically, the connecting arterial arteries in the hand bring flow from the ulnar side to the radial side, providing nutrition to the thumb, the thenar eminence, areas that typically rely on the radial artery to survive. It's rare, but in some individuals, this crossover flow is inadequate. The ulnar artery doesn't sufficiently supply the thumb or forefinger. And in those cases, harvest of a radial free flap can lead to significant necrosis functional morbidity of the hand. The Allen test is an examination of the ability of the ulnar artery to adequately perfuse the entire hand. And it's pretty simple to do. You ask the patient to clench his fist tightly, such that blood drains from the fingers and palm. While it's clenched, you occlude both the radial and ulnar arteries with your fingers, and then you ask the patient to relax. At first, the hand should remain blanched, signaling that you have successfully occluded both arteries. After confirming that, then you release pressure from the ulnar artery and you watch for reperfusion of the entire hand, and specifically the thumb or the thenar eminence. And you should see it turn red within a couple seconds. And If so, then the ulnar flow is adequate and the patient is suited for a radial free flap harvest. If you don't see adequate reperfusion, then you should investigate more thoroughly, such as with a Doppler probe, or just look for a different flap. It can be tough to perform an Allen test in some patients because of body habitus or some other factors, but using a Doppler probe can be pretty helpful, and perfusion scans often are not needed in this case.
0: Are there any other conditions or contraindications you want to rule
1: out in these patients? For all patients undergoing reconstructive surgery, you should consider their suitability for surgery and be sure to ask about any major heart or lung issues. If the patient's condition allows, meaning if he doesn't need urgent reconstruction right now, then you have time to optimize the patient for surgery by boosting nutrition, uh, boosting protein intake, controlling glucose, smoking nicotine cessation, and making sure the thyroid hormone and electrolyte levels are normal some patients will have a significant cardiac history that makes them high risk for surgery, but they may still need surgery. So for example, patients with cancer who also have major cardiac disease or significant bilateral carotid stenosis, they need surgery to cure the cancer, but a long operative reconstruction may be less favorable compared to a shorter but less aesthetically pleasing reconstruction. And that's important to consider. Next, patients with bleeding disorders or who take blood thinning medications, they should be identified. These conditions don't mean a person can't safely undergo major surgery, but as a surgeon, you may want to change your technique or follow up regimen slightly knowing that that patient is higher risk for bleeding complications. If the patient can stop blood thinners before surgery, usually that's preferred, but if they're high risk for whatever reason and really shouldn't stop their blood thinning medications then you may just have to adjust your plan up front.
0: And are there any other components to your workup, like labs or imaging, that you would consider?
1: The history and physical will give you the majority of the information you need for successful reconstruction, but lab work and imaging studies can be useful in many cases. So first, thinking back to optimizing patients before surgery, you can check a CBC, chemistry, nutrition panel, TSH, Blood loss can be significant in these reconstructions, so making sure that the patient isn't anemic from the start is useful, as is sending a type in screen. A normal white blood cell count is important, as operating on someone who already has an infection is generally a recipe for failure. If the patient has uncontrolled glucose, low electrolytes or vitamins, elevated TSH, These are easily boosted and corrected before getting into the operating room and may save the disaster of recurrent wound breakdown or poor healing afterwards. Also, if you've found any major heart or lung conditions, asking for a cardiac evaluation or other medical clearance before surgery may be needed. Imaging is often most useful in the case of bony reconstruction. If you're considering a fibular free flap, then you should evaluate perfusion of the foot with an angiogram, duplex ultrasound, or other study. You need to check for three-vessel runoff from the perineal, anterior tibial, and posterior tibial arteries. The fibular flap harvest removes the perineal artery from the leg And if a patient doesn't have adequate foot perfusion from the remaining arteries, then he can experience necrosis of the foot, which is another devastating complication. After verifying that fibular harvest is safe, imaging can also further optimize bony transfer. A fine-cut CT is useful for surgical planning, uh, making patient-specific implants, creating cutting guides, things that make the surgery more efficient and potentially more accurate. And this is true for most all osteocutaneous flaps and for the bony wound itself. So particularly if a patient is desiring dental implants, either immediately or delayed, the way in which a flap is inset is crucial for implant viability and success. Along those lines, if you think that a patient might want implants now or in the future, you should engage your oral surgery colleagues early in the reconstructive process to maximize its overall success. So last While it's not commonly performed, in some cases, a CTA of the head and neck can be useful in revealing possible vessels for free tissue anastomosis. So in particular, if a patient has had prior surgery at St. Elsewhere and you have no idea what vessels have been ligated or disrupted, then a CTA may be useful, but it is not 100% reliable either. You'll never know for sure if a free flap can work until you're in the operating room. And it's always important to keep in mind and discuss with the patient a backup plan. It's like what Von Moltke taught us. There's no battle plan that survives first contact with the enemy.
0: Now we'll move on to discussing treatment options for regional and free flaps. Let's start broadly. What are the major differences between regional and free flaps, and what are the indications for using one versus
1: the other? Now we're getting into the meat of the talk. How do we reconstruct complex head and neck wounds? It's always important to remember the proverbial reconstructive ladder, but don't get sucked into thinking of it as a vector of treatment options or as something that should be progressed up in order. There are many wounds that are possible to close with granulation, skin grafts, local flaps, but that may be better served both functionally and cosmetically with a regional or free tissue transfer. And it's okay to take one giant leap to the top of the ladder, skipping the lower rungs. You should consider regional and free tissue transfer for any wounds that include multiple layers, where tissue tension, scarring, or tethering could cause functional deficits, where the wounds are a result of poor nutrition up front, such as breakdown from scarring, radiation therapy, basically when they definitely aren't going to heal on their own, and when fresh and robustly vascularized tissue is needed. After determining that regional or free tissue transfer is warranted, then you need to find the ideal flap. And often, a single wound could be reconstructed with acceptable functional and aesthetic outcomes by multiple flaps. Not to say that you need to use multiple flaps in the same wound, but rather that one flap or one wound could be reconstructed by any number of flaps. There rarely is just one right option, but there are some fundamental differences between regional and free flaps with pros and cons to each that you can consider and discuss with your patient to decide on the right, most ideal reconstruction for him or her. So first, getting back to the basics, what is a regional flap? What's an axial flap of tissue, an angiosome in a way, uh, supplied by a specific named vessel? It's different than a local flap in that its nutrition is not based on a random pattern in the subternal plexus, and it's different from a free flap in that during tissue transfer, it remains attached at the proximal aspect of its source vessel or its pedicle. Because regional flaps have a defined, robust blood supply, they can viably be very large and include composite tissue transfer, but they can also be fairly small. It's just whatever is needed. Just because a vessel supplies a large area of tissue doesn't mean that you have to harvest the entire bulk of tissue. Examples of some common regional flaps are the paramedian forehead flap based on the supratrochlear vessels, facial artery myomucosal flap, or FAM based on the facial artery, Temporoparietal fascial flap based on the superficial temporal vessels, and then the larger ones that I think we're more familiar with. The pectoralis flap off the thoracoacromial artery, deltopectoral flap of the internal mammary vessels, supraclavicular flap of the supraclavicular artery, trapezius flap also from branches of the transverse cervical vessels, latissimus off the thoracodorsal vessels, and, and so on. There are many others, and even if a flap is not commonly used Or doesn't have a common name doesn't mean it's not worth considering. In theory, a regional flap can be designed around any source vessel. You just have to know and be comfortable with the anatomy. A free flap, on the other hand, is any angiosomal tissue that's harvested with its source vessel completely separated from the body and then inset in a new location. So its pedicle undergoes microsurgical anastomosis with local vessels. That's how it gets its nutrition. free flaps can be very large and can include composite tissue transfer or, similar to regional flaps, they can also be smaller. While bony transfer is possible with regional flaps, really free flaps are the workhorse for osseous reconstruction. So how do you decide then between a regional and a free flap reconstruction? Well, again, it's less about regional versus free and more about finding the right flap for the right patient for the right wound. But again, there are some key differences and key questions that can guide your decision making. So first, the wound itself. What does it need? Does it need composite tissue, bulky tissue, thin pliable tissue, and so on? This typically narrows your ideal reconstructive options to just a few flaps. A wound that needs substantial bone, for example, is probably ideally reconstructed with a fibular free flap. Or if the leg vessels aren't suitable, a scapular osteocutaneous flap. Based off the circumflex scapular vessels. Free transfer of the iliac crest bone supplied by the deep circumflex iliac vessels can accommodate dental rehabilitation, but the maximum pedicle length available for harvest with iliac crest tends to be pretty short, maybe even only around seven centimeters, which can make this flap less ideal. A bone can be harvested with a radial flap, and that comes with a very long pedicle, but you typically only take a partial thickness of the radius maybe even 50 to 60% of it, and so it provides a much thinner, shorter, smaller stock of bone that may not support dental implants and rehabilitation. As as a quick side note, pedicle length is something that we'll come back to in a bit, as it's also very important. But as for other options in bony transfer, folks have described taking a rib as part of the pectoralis regional flap, but the rib viability is less assured given the tenuous, blood supply reaching the bone, and the inset is limited by the reach and rotation of the pedicle. It's not impossible, but it may not be the best first choice. Next, say you have a shallow but wide defect of a cheek. Well, then you need soft tissue that's relatively thin and pliable. Maybe not as thin as a skin graft, that might be too thin, but a radial forearm or a cervical facial advancement flap could both provide the needed tissue. What about a wound that needs bulk, say a total glossectomy or a total parotidectomy defect? The tongue can granulate on its own, or you know could be covered by a thin radial free flap. But without adequate bulk, uh, the patient will have minimal hope of achieving a functional swallow and understandable speech after surgery. A rectus abdominis or um, ALT anterolateral thigh flap typically is an excellent source of bulky soft tissue that could recreate a tongue or fill in the entire defect for a parotid. Now, among regional flaps, a pectoralis often provides bulk. Of course, if your patient is obese, then a pec, a rectus, or a thigh may be way too big. Imagine you can't put a pot belly in someone's mouth. And in that case, the radio-free flap may be plenty bulky enough. Also, a radio forearm can be harvested as a fascia-only flap, meaning without the overlying skin of the forearm. It'll re-epithelialize intraorally, and this kind of harvest obviates the need for skin graft closure of the toner site. After considering the wound, then you need to consider the handful of flaps that could fit it, which provides better restoration of function. If they're all the same, then you can consider which would look the best or have the most similar skin match. Someone with a tattoo on the arm, for example, won't want that transferred to fill in a cheek wound. Um, On the other hand. The pectoralis and other regional flaps can leave abnormal and undesirable bulkiness or skin defects, such as large dog ears, at their pedicle attachment. And these can be improved in the long run, but patients would have to live with that abnormal appearance for several months and then would have to undergo another surgery for cosmetic improvement. So finally, when you're considering the wound itself, start thinking about where local vessels are that are suitable for anastomosis, say for a free flap. If your wound is on the scalp, you could possibly use a superficial temporal artery and vein just in front of the ear, but these vessels can be small, they can spasm easily, and they may have been disrupted by previous surgery. So what's next? Well, you may need a rather long pedicle that can reach from the scalp down into the neck, and you won't always know for sure what pedicle length you need until you're in the operating room. Similarly, in patients with previous surgery, common vessels used for free flap anastomosis, such as the facial artery and vein, may not be available. They may have already been ligated. You may have to look, say, to the transfer cervical vessels or other alternatives. In fact, whenever approaching a vessel deplete neck, I like to look for the transfer cervical vessels adjacent to the clavicle. They're often interrupted. They're in tissue that isn't scarred or previously dissected. And generally, they're of a decent caliber for free tissue transfer. If there aren't vessels in the ipsilateral neck and if the transverse cervical vessels aren't adequate, you can always consider going to the contralateral neck. It's just a matter of pedicle length. And in considering where so-called donor vessels may be, you should consider the length of the different free flaps that you're thinking about for reconstruction. If you think you're going to need a longer pedicle length, that could limit your flap options. So a radial free flap or a latissimus flap can have a rather long pedicle, maybe even 15 centimeters or more, depending on an individual's anatomy. An anterior lateral thigh, iliac crest, they may have a pretty short pedicle, maybe seven centimeters or less. If the pedicle isn't long enough, that doesn't mean that you can't use that flap, but it does mean that you'll have to use vein grafts to extend your pedicle so that it can reach the donor vessels. And this introduces extra sites of anastomosis, exercise of endothelial damage, and can increase the risk of flap compromise. Next, you should look at the donor site. A pectoralis flap, for example, can significantly deform the breast, and this can be troublesome, especially for female patients, even if they don't admit it or don't think it will bother them. A trapezius flap, a pedicled latissimus, or a free flap may be a better option for these patients. Similarly, if a patient has had prior wrist surgery, then a radial free flap may not be an option. Or, Knowing that the skin graft needed to close the donor site for radial free flap may leave a burn-like scar, a patient may prefer a cervical facial advancement or another option. The fibular free flap may provide the best pony reconstruction of the jaw in a patient, but he or she will have restricted walking for a few weeks during recovery. Maybe that will be unacceptable to him, and so on. Each flap will have its own unique characteristics, both for the wound being reconstructed and in terms of donor site morbidity. And what may seem like the best option at first glance to the surgeon may not fit well with a specific patient's priorities. Now, a flap can be a standalone reconstruction for a particular wound, but it doesn't have to be. In some cases, it could be combined with local flaps, skin grafts, and other options to achieve the best possible outcome. A latissimus flap, for example, based off the thoracodorsal vessels, can be harvested with its muscle only to cover a very broad defect, say, of the entire scalp. You can also harvest it with the overlying subcutaneous tissue and the skin, but you may not want to if the defect remaining in the back will be too large to close primarily or if the patient is obese and the added bulk will look odd in its new position. After transferring the muscle, you can skin graft over the top. In the case of a scalp reconstruction, when it's all healed, it leaves a robust, fairly normal appearing reconstruction. However, skin grafts need, at minimum, six weeks of initial healing, and that's assuming they have 100% take. So planning for skin grafts, even over top of a free flap in a patient who needs radiation, will delay the definitive cancer management. So finally, don't forget about the postoperative course and any other patient-specific issues discovered before surgery. If the patient is a poor surgical candidate, then your ideal flap may not be ideal for that patient rather a flap with a shorter operative time may be best, as we've already touched on. Also remember, patients with free flaps will have longer ICU stays, longer hospital stays, than patients after regional flap reconstruction. Now, some folks will say that free flaps are less reliable than regional flaps, since their pedicle is separated during surgery. But I think in experienced hands, the success rate of regional and free flaps is similar, and both are well above 90 to 95%. Successful regional and free flaps will both get patients out of the hospital within one to two weeks and sufficiently healed in time to start chemo radiation therapy as needed in four to six weeks, except, again, for those flaps in which you include a skin graft.
0: You've already begun to cover this, but in terms of regional flaps, what treatment options exist for us there?
1: For strictly academic and testing purposes, it can be worthwhile to go through the lists of flaps and how they're classified. Flaps are often classified based on the types of tissue that they include. For example, myocutaneous, fasciocutaneous, myofascial, myomucosal, and and so on. Just remember that the academic classification of flaps isn't always practical. In practice, I still think it's best to start by figuring out what the wound needs and kind of finding a flap from there. Now, in deciding on what flap will be best, we've already mentioned how you need to consider what tissue is needed—bone, soft tissue, skin—and then evaluate bulk versus thin, pliable. Do you need a very large, broad flap? Um, and also, where does your flap need to reach? Especially in the case of regional flaps. Now, as, as a side note, there is no set limit or boundary regarding where a particular regional flap will reach or not. It varies among all patients and all body types, but We can list a few flaps here and just have this list as things to keep in mind. So first, cutaneous flaps. The submental island flap is sometimes classified just as as a cutaneous flap. It's based on the submental artery branch of the facial artery, and it can be useful for defects of the oral cavity, nasal base, premaxilla. The donor site will typically close on its own, and it can provide excellent skin match for defects of the lower face. I would strongly caution anyone from using the submental flap in a patient with head and neck cancer, however, as you could be transferring nodes within the drainage basin of that cancer, and thus compromising the sound surgical resection. Next, after cutaneous, we can move to fasciocutaneous flaps. One example here is the TPF or temporal parietal fascia flap. It can be a very broad to very thin and pliable. It's based off the superficial temporal artery. Um, it's commonly used for microsurgery reconstruction. It can be transferred to areas near the orbit, anterior skull face, and so on. Some larger examples of fasciocutaneous flaps would be the deltopectoral flap and the supraclavicular flap. Both of these tend to have a decent color match um, for defects of the head and neck. Um, occasionally, they'll require a second surgery to separate their pedicle. The Delta pectoral flap is based off the internal mammary perforators, um, and the supraclavicular flap is based off the supraclavicular artery off the transverse cervical. Oftentimes, these defects can be closed primarily, it just again depends on the patient and the pliability or looseness of their own skin. So, next, myocutaneous flaps. The pec major is one of the most common ones that we use in head and neck reconstruction. It can be very bulky. Um, You can take muscle and skin or muscle only, depending on what you need. Uh, The pec flap is based off the thoracochromial artery, and it can commonly be used essentially anywhere in the neck for the oropharynx, hypopharynx, wherever it will reach in that patient. Again, a a pec is likely to, at the very least, leave a scar, um, but also cause significant deformity to a breast and that's just something to remember for female patients. Next, the the trapezius flap and the latissimus pedigold flap. I think of these as similar to the pec. The trap is the pec of the back and the latissimus is the pec of the flank, Um, but they can be raised in a similar fashion and used uh, for similar indications. They're similarly bulky. You can take the muscle only or the muscle in the skin. The trap flap is based off of branches descending from the occipital. Um, The latissimus flap is based off the thoracodorsal artery. And again, wherever it will reach in that patient is where you can use it. Now, one last one, uh, myocutaneous or just myofascial that we could add in here is the sternocleidomastoid flap. I tend to use this most commonly after total laryngectomy just to reinforce the pharyngeal closure it can be fairly vascular. The sternocleidomastoid has uh, nutrition supplied from branches off the occipital, posterior, auricular, superior thyroid artery. Um, And so it can be transferred based inferiorly or superiorly as far as it will reach.
0: Great. And moving up to free flaps, what are a surgeon's options for those?
1: Again, for free flaps, you should think first, does the wound need bone? next, does it need bulk or thin tissue? And finally, what kind of pedicle does it need? Does it have to be a long pedicle? For osseous reconstruction, the fibula is going to be the workhorse of what we tend to use in head and neck surgery. And it can be as long as it'll give you in a person, depending on you know how tall he or she is. You have to leave some bone at the ankle and some bone at the knee for stability, but otherwise you can take the entire bone in between Fibula is great if you're going to need dental implants uh, for dental rehabilitation later. It tends to have um, a strong nutritional supply from the perineal artery and its venae comatons, and it's what's most commonly used for reconstruction of the mandible and the maxilla. Just remember, you need to evaluate that three-vessel runoff, um, some sort of angiogram or duplex before harvesting it. Now, if the fibula doesn't work, you can also have osseous free flaps from iliac crest or from the scapula. Um, the iliac crest it can give you a good amount of muscle and bone. Um, it can be great for implants and the scar is fairly concealed. The iliac is based off the deep circumflex iliac artery, but remember that pedicle could be rather short. The scapula um, can give you a great stock of bone, could give you a much longer pedicle. It has the option for separate soft tissue that can transfer with it, say for through and through defects. Um, It's based off the circumflex scapular um, artery and is also very commonly used in head and neck reconstruction, but more commonly when you can't use a fibula. Now, let's say you're looking at defects that need a lot of bulk. Well, especially in the American population, but really in anyone, you can get a decent amount of bulk from the anterior lateral thigh, rectus abdominis, latissimus free flap, and just from the scapula, whether or not you're taking bone. If you need a broad but thin uh, free flap, then the latissimus is going to be a good option, uh, particularly just the muscle only, if you uh, can tolerate that. Or in some patients, a radial forearm, that can be fairly wide. The longest pedicles are going to come from the latissimus a radial form and in some folks, the rectus, where you can really get 10 to 15 centimeters of a pedicle. If you need functional muscle, then you're looking at gracilis, serratus, latissimus, strap muscle. Uh, but again, that's for a different talk given by Dr. Holman.
0: Regional and free flaps get an understandable reputation as pretty delicate procedures with tighter intraoperative and postoperative ideal conditions than most other surgeries, Can you speak a little bit to any additional intraoperative considerations you might
1: have? There are some features of flap harvest that are unique in terms of intraoperative and postoperative considerations. The majority of these considerations were developed specifically in relation to free flaps, but they're certainly applicable to regional flaps too. So first, anesthetic considerations. You want to avoid hypothermia, so use of a bear hugger and even warming the room is helpful. The trick just might be finding an appropriate and effective place for the bear hugger to go, as often you're prepping a large portion of the patient's body um, that can't be covered by the bear hugger. But so long as you think about it ahead of time, something can always be worked out. Next, studies have shown significant deleterious effects on flap outcomes when the duration of anesthesia is very long, say longer than 18 hours. And that may seem like a long time, and it is. But for patients with very complex wounds, combining prep time with the excision with a multi-layer reconstruction, it can add up. And this may be one case in which two shorter surgeries separated by a few days may be better for the patient and for the flaps than the one very long surgery. Now, most important with regard to anesthetic considerations and certainly to the topic, uh, the topic that many like to focus on is that of pressors. Now, in general, if pressors can be avoided, then they should be. And if the anesthesia team feels pressors are needed, then the surgeon should let them know from the start of the case that the preference to be included in that decision and in that discussion. And many studies have been conducted on what fluids are best to give or not to give, transfusions before and during, pressors if necessary, and what types. And Overall, a lot of the literature is still messy, it's retrospective in nature, but some leading trends have emerged in the past decade. Ideally, for flat perfusion, mean arterial pressures should be maintained above 60 to 65 millimeters of mercury. Conservative boluses of crystalloids, say normal saline or lactated ringer solution, are useful as a first-line treatment for dropping pressures when you need to boost them, and these can be alternated, say, with packed red blood cells. Some surgeons also advocate for alternating crystalloid boluses with colloid or albumin. I personally prefer to avoid albumin as it can worsen swelling in the flap and elsewhere throughout the body for the first few days after surgery. Fluid overload should also be avoided. The exact cutoff varies, but some studies say fluid in excess of 6 milliliters per kilogram per hour is too much. Others would say it's more than 7 liters positive intake to outtake ratio is too much. Regardless, if the patient is persistently having low blood pressures, then pressors may be necessary. Low blood pressure can lead to inadequate perfusion of the flap and flap failure. The fear with pressors is that the subsequent vasoconstriction will also restrict flap perfusion. This fear has not definitively been demonstrated to occur in the literature. And in fact, many studies exist that suggest so long as the patient is not hypovolemic, the pressors won't significantly affect flat perfusion. However, there certainly are some pressors that are better than others. I'd avoid norepinephrine and vasopressin at all costs if you can. If a patient really needs pressors, there's decent evidence that dobutamine and dopamine are the least likely to affect affect flap perfusion, so you can start there. And how
0: about in terms of postoperative care and additional considerations outside of the operating room?
1: After anesthesia, you're not out of the woods. The most common reason for flap failure is vascular compromise, typically a venous outflow. Less commonly, the artery can become clotted or can spasm, cutting off inflow of nutrients. Vascular compromise can lead to flap failure if it occurs within a few weeks of anastomosis. Now, Some will say that a radial forearm is no longer dependent on its pedicle after three weeks of healing. And certainly this makes sense in theory as neoangiogenesis takes about that long to be complete. But I've certainly never tested that theory in practice. Now, after a few months, soft tissue flaps will survive even if their pedicle vessels are cut um, due to the development of collateral flow. Remember, though, that a jejunal flap will uniquely always be dependent on his pedicle. Now, Even though compromise can occur anytime in the first few weeks after flap inset, the highest risk for vascular compromise is in the first 72 hours. It takes about three days for vessels to endothelialize where they were sewn together. And this essentially is why we monitor flaps so closely and often in the ICU for the first three days after surgery. If there's a problem with the venous outflow, then blood will fill up in the flap, making it congested, it will appear more swollen, mottled, bruised, it'll feel firm, and if pricked with a small needle, you'll see an immediate return of dark blood, sometimes described as oil-like, and that's the oxygen-poor blood collecting in the flap because it's unable to drain alternatively, if there's a problem with artery, then the flap will appear pale, it'll lose its capillary refill, it may feel cold to the touch, though remember that flaps in the mouth will never feel cold, so don't rely just on that. If pricked with a needle, there will be no return of blood even after many seconds, because all the blood that was in the flap has drained and no new oxygenated blood is currently coming in. Now, there are implantable Dopplers that you can wrap around the artery, the vein, or both during surgery to add an audible component to flap monitoring after surgery, but you have to be careful not to become complacent and listen only to the Doppler. A visual and manual check of the flap is incredibly important and often the only way of recognizing early or partial flap compromise. One method of remembering what is needed for each flap check is the saying, check with the chief big dog. And I have to give credit for this one to Dr. Scott Bevins. It's an odd saying, but it's quite effective and it is stuck with me. Just remember, C check the color of the flap, T from the for temperature, C again for capillary refill, B for bleeding after a needle prick, and D for Doppler, either implanted or external. If vascular compromise is identified soon after it occurs, and the patient is returned to the OR, urgently explored, then salvage rates are very high, well above 90%. A soft tissue flap is believed to be able to tolerate up to six hours of ischemia and still be viable. Obviously, the sooner vascular flow is restored, the better. In the case of jejunal flaps, only one to two hours of ischemic time can be tolerated. But for all free flaps, this is the impetus for the every one hour flap checks in the first 72 hours after surgery. Vascular compromise can also occur in pedicled flaps due to changes in patient positioning, application of ties around the neck, other changes. The pedicle can become kinked, compressed, and flap compromise can develop. And similar to free flaps, if it's identified soon and the cause is reversed, often it can be salvaged. Vascular compromise is not always an all-or-nothing phenomenon, though. Flaps can experience compromise of distal vessels with partial flow interruption. In the case of partial venous outflow obstruction, maybe only part of the flap will begin to appear mottled or bruised. This is a great case for leech therapy or herudotherapy. Leeches secrete herudin, a blood thinning agent. Um, They also directly physically remove blood from a flap. and In so doing, they act as a temporary outflow or a temporary vein until, say, a more robust outflow is established. Now, leeches are not going to overcome an obstruction of the main venous outflow in the vascular pedicle, but they can be very helpful in segmental congestion. So patients on leech therapy, remember they should receive anti aeromonas antibiotics, such as fluoroquinolones, to prevent infection. Also keep in mind that not all patients will be able to mentally tolerate leech therapy. They may require one-to-one nursing care for a period, or in extreme cases, and if the flap's intraoral, they may require sedation. And So always balance these considerations with those of the flap. Just as a flap can have partial venous obstruction, it could also have partial arterial obstruction of an arterial distal to the main pedicle vessel. In this case, nitropase application can aid vessel dilation and tissue nutrition. But again, be careful as application of nitropase might cause an unwanted drop in blood pressure. So there's a recurring theme in Flat patients, and it's that of finding a balance. It seems every intervention has a bad side, and these patients tend to be tenuous to start with, so you just have to be constantly vigilant. Now, another common topic for debate is whether to give flat patients anticoagulation and what kind. Overall, there are no evidence-based guidelines for the prevention of microvascular thrombosis after free tissue transfer in head and neck surgery. In practice, most surgical patients will receive, at the very least, DVT prophylaxis after surgery. Subcutaneous heparin has been shown to provide a substantial reduction in the risk of thrombosis without gross systemic side effects and is perhaps the safest pharmacologic agent to be given after free flap surgery. Extra anticoagulation is often tailored to individual patients based on comorbidities, risk assessment, Many flap surgeons also feel that the addition of aspirin can be beneficial in select patients, though it does increase the risk of hematoma formation, and so it should be given judiciously.
0: What are your surgical expectations for these procedures, and what defines a good outcome?
1: Expectation management is incredibly important, and it should be thoroughly discussed with the patient before surgery, especially if you're anticipating a multi-stage reconstruction. A quote unquote good outcome will be different for every patient depending on his disease and defect and what you consider to be a good outcome may not be a good outcome to the patient. Often recovery of intelligible speech and oral swallowing ability are some of the major goals of reconstruction if these functions have been interrupted. And this is the biggest reason why glosectomy defects, for example, even partial classectomy defects are probably best served with flap reconstruction because if you don't restore the bulk of the tongue and prevent tethering with legitimate ankyloglossia due to scarring to the floor of the mouth, then patients won't be able to swallow if they'll have poorly intelligible speech. In dentate patients who've had disruption of the mandible or maxilla, restoring appropriate occlusion is important. Also, preventing new functional deficits after reconstruction is paramount to achieving success. So you don't want to cause ectropion, epiphora, corneal abrasion due to scar, contracture with inferior lid malposition after cheek reconstruction, for example, just as you don't want to cause oral incompetence with drooling due to an inability to close the mouth. After restoring function, you can then judge how good your outcome is with aesthetics. So again, this varies incredibly with what the defect is. um, And if it's unreasonable to think that a patient will look exactly like he did before cancer or trauma or whatever, then you have to have that discussion with the patient and set those expectations up front. And last, don't forget about prostheses. Some prostheses, like obturators, can be made by a prosthodontist that you partner with and can improve function, in this case swallowing. Others can significantly improve one's appearance. And wear of a prosthetic ear, prosthetic eye, prosthetic nose, is an option that often means avoiding surgery, but can lead to excellent aesthetic results.
0: You've already covered really nicely that most feared complication of vascular compromise, but are there any other complications you'd be keeping in the back of your mind for these patients?
1: Absolutely. So just like most other surgical procedures, flap transfer can be affected by hematomas, infections, poor scarring, and so on. Free flap patients are at particular risk for hematoma development, given they're often on blood thinning medications to prevent that vascular compromise of the flap. However, a large hematoma can also cause vessel compression. And personally, I'm a fan of drain placement. A drain is not going to prevent a hematoma, um, but I do think it could help with identifying when blood is collecting beneath the skin. It can also provide a temporary outlet for some blood that may help you at least temporarily until you get back to the OR. Next, a surgical antibiotic prophylaxis is important, especially when operating in you know, quote-unquote sterile areas. Um, so you're in the neck, but then you're also in the mouth, which is a naturally dirty area. There are varying studies of the efficacy and the need for postoperative antibiotic regimens and how long you should give them, and you'll find that every surgeon has a different preference. I like to keep patients on antibiotics so long as drains are in or so long as the implantable Doppler wire is in place, but that's just me. If a patient starts showing signs of infection, I'm rather quick to take him back to the operating room for a washout and drain replacement. I've seen a few patients with late flap failure, say three weeks or so after surgery, due to infections. And so regardless of what you do or you choose to do, I think it's important to keep close tabs on these patients even after they leave the hospital. For how long do you usually
0: follow these patients postoperatively?
1: Most folks with a regional flap reconstruction will stay in-house for a few days, at least three, for monitoring of the flap. For free flaps, they'll typically stay in the ICU for three days with the every one-hour checks, and then they'll transfer to the ward and continue with every four-hour checks, at least till they leave the hospital. Personally, I would not want to discharge a free flap from the hospital earlier than one week after surgery, but rarely are patients ready to go at that point anyway. Often, uh, they'll be in-house for 10 days or so, and usually the rate-limiting step is getting everything set up for discharge. So folks with a trach or who are going to need wound care, getting that durable medical equipment and home health arranged. Similarly, it's very easy for patients to get deconditioned after a long surgery, and so the subsequent multi-day ICU stay and being in the hospital, they may need rehab before eventually going home. This is just something else to think about. In the long run for follow-up for cancer patients, I like to see them at the start, halfway through, at the end of chemo radiation, and then start seeing them on a fairly regular basis for their cancer follow-up. Now, for folks without cancer, the follow-up pattern really varies depending on what caused the problem in the first place, how the reconstruction is going, and what the patient wants. Some patients just really like to be seen, and some don't want to come in and see you. And if they're doing fine, then then that's okay. So in general, the follow-up is just tailored to each patient's specific needs. Do you expect any change or progression in the final result over time? Of course, everything changes, and you should make sure that patients know that everything changes. Scars heal, contract, they change color, often up to a year or even more after surgery. Flaps will atrophy and can lose a good deal of their bulk over several months. Also, the body adjusts uh, over time to new ways of swallowing, new ways of speaking, and so on. So for folks with unappealing bulk to their flaps, say from a pectoralis transfer to the neck debulking can be performed, um, but I'd recommend waiting at least you know, a year or around there after surgery. Make sure that the patient demonstrates no breakdown of tissue, fistulas, infections, other things, and then debulking is probably okay. And, and of course, there are a myriad of ways that scars can be revised and improved, but that's an entire talk in and of itself.
0: All right. So that was a really nice summary of a very complex topic. Um, before we transition to the uh, kind of end of our podcast with the summary and questions section, um, was there anything else you wanted to add or, or review?
1: Thank you so much for inviting me to be a part of this talk. Folks who have other questions are certainly able to to reach out, and I'm happy to chat more with anyone who has other questions.
0: All right. Thanks so much, Dr. Vincent. Thanks, Renee. To summarize our discussion today, regional and free flaps are angiosome-based flaps with blood supply either left pedicled, as with regional flaps, or transplanted from the donor site into the recipient site, as with free flaps. They are typically used to reconstruct large defects involving multiple tissue types and facial subunits, but can sometimes be used for smaller defects when an independent blood supply is useful. On history and physical, it is important to assess whether the surrounding tissue has been previously operated upon or radiated and to assess patients' risk factors for predisposing to flap failure, which includes ability to follow up regularly, as well as medical comorbidities like vasculopathies, immunodeficiency, or diabetes. Physical exam in these patients should also evaluate vascular supply to the donor tissue when able, for example, with an Allen test before radial free flap surgery. Besides photodocumentation, it's also beneficial to obtain preoperative angiography or duplex ultrasound of the donor tissue to ensure adequate collateral perfusion, or even of the recipient tissue if prior surgery or vascular compromise is suspected. Fine-cut CT can also be useful for bony defects in designing implants or cutting guides for osteocutaneous flaps. We discussed a number of regional flaps, such as paramedian forehead, FAM, temporoparietal fascia pectoralis, delta pectoral, and supraclavicular flaps, all of which have their source vessels, remain in place via a pedicle, as well as free flaps such as fibular, radial forearm, and iliac crest free flaps, which have their source vessel removed with them and reconnected at the recipient site. When deciding between whether to use a regional or free flap, it's important to take into account the type of tissue needing to be replaced, particularly if bone is needed, as well as availability of donor vessels at the recipient site size and location of the defect, and skin tone and texture matching. The time course for healing and need for future therapies, such as postoperative radiation, also factors into this decision. While we expect both regional and free flaps to have 90% or greater success rates, these flaps, particularly free flaps, require meticulous postoperative care to avoid vascular compromise. This classically includes avoiding pressors, maintaining adequate perfusion pressure, given post-operative anticoagulation and frequent monitoring of flap perfusion, particularly during the first 72 hours as the vessel anastomoses endothelialize. If vascular compromise is detected, flaps can be salvaged either operatively or with nitropaste or herudotherapy. Down the line, scar revision and flap debulking can be considered, but are usually deferred for at least a year to allow for complete wound healing, scar contracture, and flap atrophy. And finally, we'll finish up with a couple of review questions. As always, I'll ask the question, pause for a few moments, for you to think of the answer, and then say the answer. First off, describe what an angiosome is and how we use it for regional and free flap surgical planning. An angiosome is a region of skin and subcutaneous tissue, which can include muscle and bone, that is supplied by a specific source artery or arteries. If you harvest that tissue with its source artery and draining veins, the entire angiosome should still stay perfused. In this way, the tissue can be regionally transferred, as in the case of the pedicle remaining intact, or completely removed and reanastomosed, as in the case of free flaps. Next, what are we looking for with a duplex ultrasound or angiogram of the legs before a fibular free flap? Before a fibular free flap, angiography demonstrating three-vessel runoff from the perineal, anterior tibial, and posterior tibial arteries should be obtained. This assures that the foot is adequately perfused with the anterior and posterior tibial arteries once the fibular flap and its perineal artery are removed, avoiding foot necrosis. And to wrap up, what therapy should all patients receiving Heruta therapy or Leech therapy be placed on prophylactically? Leeches have a symbiotic relationship with Aeromonas species bacteria and can transfer these to patients when used in hirudotherapy. Thus, patients receiving leech therapy should receive anti-aeromonas antibiotic prophylaxis, usually with a fluoroquinolone antibiotic. Additionally, many patients, very understandably, may require additional therapy or even sedation to be able to tolerate leech therapy. That wraps up our discussion for today. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.